Hello everybody and welcome to Documentation Not Included. It's 7pm UK time here on twitch.tv forward slash DNI stream and we're about to launch into episode 2.9 Tech Debt Consolidation. As I'm sure most of you know by now, my name's Chris and today I'm joined by my co-host Patrick. Hello Chris and hello everyone in Twitch chat. If you have anything to say during the show, please do get involved. Uh, we read out any comments that, that are relevant or funny. And also feel free to tell us uh, off when we actually get sidetracked. Because, you know, Josie's not with us again. She's on holiday. Um, but yeah, things will be back to normal next week. Yeah, she'll be back with us. Um, well rested and ready to crack the whip, I believe. Um, so yes, uh, today our guest is Mark Walsh. Uh, he's a developer I worked with back in 2013 at a startup in Liverpool. Um, and the, I think that startup ended up being bought out by a big American company. I was actually part of the reason that happened. I think I was brought in to improve, you know, and make the software cost, you know, be worth more or something. And as with many other contractors there. Um, and yeah, so Mark, Mark has a lot of startup experience. If you'd like to tell our listeners what you do, what, you, what, you, yeah. what you're involved in these days, and we'll go from there. Yeah. So quite a lot of experience with um, startups myself, as Chris mentioned before. Um, I was working at a startup when Chris joined the startup. Um, I then joined another startup as a more senior developer and sort of worked my way up into a tech lead and that's me today. Um, sort of a, a jack of all trades, um, as you are commonly in startups. Um, and yeah, that's basically me. Good stuff. Um, so yes, uh, before we get going, it's icebreaker time. Now, an icebreaker is something we ask all of our guests before, well, not just guests, everybody on the show, um, before we get going, just to get get us uh, go, just to get us to know you a little bit better and get our, our listeners uh, to understand how we think. It's usually something not related to tech, and it's also something that's not really related to the show at all. I've got one this week again. If you could run a, a talk show... What are you, What would your first three guests be? Or who would your first three guests be? Of all the people. Of all the people in the world, dead, alive, no. historical. Um, I'm going to let Pat go today, so Mark, Mark can have a think. Ah, oh, jeez, I, I wanted to think about it too. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I've because got mine ready, so shall I, shall I for once go first? Because I'm yeah, usually the one who offloads. Yeah, okay, so first of all, it would be John Romero, who was the guy who created, um, a, a, as well as John Carmack and uh, another guy, Tim Willits, was it? I'm not sure, actually. It was three guys who created id Software, who created the Quick and Doom franchises. The reason for that is that they invented the FPS genre and the you know, the deathmatch and, and that kind of thing. And every time I see John Romero on anything, he's really interested in that. He's the same with John Carmack, to be fair, but he's a lot more technical, a lot more kind of geeky and, you know, geek-focused. Second one is uh, someone I've used quite a few times in, in situations like this, uh, Ava Loveless, or Lovelace. She was the very first computer scientist ever. She was uh, she worked with a guy called Charles, Charles Babbage, English, I believe, as well, um, who created the very first computer, or what was it called, the difference machine or something like that. It was a massive thing that had big wheels churning, and, and she worked on the very first algorithm. She didn't actually sit down and type a computer, but she worked on the very first computer algorithm. And second, and the, the last one would be some kind of serial killer, just because I really want to, I just, I'm fascinated by, you know, like true crime and how, the, like serial killers, how the how did they even get into that mindset? I mean, I know a lot of them are mentally unstable, but yeah, so that's me. 
I've hopefully, hopefully uh, give you time there to think, Pat. Yeah, and I've actually got my free too. So okay. with 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 a caveat that it will be explicitly gaming talk show. Okay. Uh, I'd uh, like I'd love to have uh, Elon Musk, simply because I think it will be kind of funny and interesting. Given that recently he's been trying to put uh, video games into his Teslas, so you know, okay. clearly I didn't he. Know that. Clearly, he's an nerd, so you know it'd be interesting to pick his brain about video games, um, because you know he's been talking about anime and obviously about rockets and stuff like that, but not much about video. Uh, second person, Total Biscuit, because man, I miss that guy. For those who don't know, he was he was a really amazing PC games reviewer. I think one of the best, and unfortunately, he died of cancer. And man, it's uh, such a shame because mm. I, I'd, lo- I'd love him. I'd love to have him, uh, you know, uh, try a game that I'm working on, but I can't because <laughs> not with us anymore. Yeah. And the third person, and that's why it will have to be a gaming show, uh, and that we we should talk about video games. Is that I, w- I would love to have Donald Trump because <laughs> I, it would be amazing to hear him speak about video games. Can you oh, just God. imagine this? No, I can't. The, well, it'll best, be the same as I'm every the other best subject. Video games. I'm the best at video games. I'm a MLG pro. <laughs> 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 it'll be so, Mark, does that give you enough time to think of three yourself? Um, yeah, but I think my talk show would probably be more of a a general sort of, you know, let's just talk about anything kind of talk show. I don't think I'd be able to have like a, especially with the guests that I would pick. There would mm. be absolutely no genre whatsoever. Yeah, go on. So, <laughs> so I'd probably start off with Da Vinci, okay. then Leonardo Da Vinci, and that's only just basically because he seems like a genius. Some of the stuff that he sort of designed seems just impossible for that era. Yeah, um, he is really a fascinating character. Uh, second one is probably someone that a lot of people would say. And presuming that I can communicate with him in English, yeah. um, probably Hitler. Good, good, uh, mostly good one. to ask him, <laughs> mostly to ask him why and um, just, stop. Just <laughs> read Mein Kampf. I'll, I'll tell you what. <laughs> well, I've got that on my Amazon wish list, and I'm still waiting for a phone call from from some you know, authority somewhere. <laughs> yeah, so, so you'll have to have a license to read the books. Yeah. <laughs> Dangerous books. <laughs> And um, I realise that I'm just choosing historical characters, but I'm quite interested in history. Yeah, yeah. That's one of my interests. Um, but also probably Henry VIII. Okay. Um, because he seemed like a bit of a character. An awful um, man. He also seems like an absolutely an, awful man. He, there's a common theme with my selections. Two out of the three of them seem like awful men. Seem like <laughs> um, Hitler. <laughs> News, yeah. everybody. Hitler oh, seems is. like an awful person. <laughs> I mean, let's not jump to the conclusions. Come on. <laughs> Brilliant. This is, this is not a good audition on a podcast, is it? <laughs> no, uh, one definitely is an awful guy. Um, Henry VIII just seems like a very strange man. Um, uh, the whole taken on the Catholic Church thing. Headstrong, very, yeah. Yeah, headstrong. I, I'd particularly like to meet him when he was. Uh, he needed a he needed a lift to be put into. I can't remember where he was living at the time, but they had to construct like a medieval lift just to get him up the stairs because he had such bad gout mm. that he couldn't even climb the stairs. There's lots of I stories like meet... that you don't get taught in school about Henry VIII. That yeah, you find out when you're an adult. And... Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. generally lots of stories about nobility that are. 
So, um, OE90, or Awesome90, I think, as uh, Josie called her the other week, uh, it says, why, I think this is in response to Patrick's, why not both get Elon and Donald to sit down together and watch Chaos Unwind? Can you imagine them <laughs> two even having a civil conversation, though? They did, because for a while, Elon Musk was on his technology advisor board, and really? he got a lot of flack for it, yeah. Oof. A lot of people hated him, because he was like, oh, how, how can you talk with the orange cheetah monster? Um, I mean, it's... It's an approach, but, you know, maybe let's steer away from the politics before mm. we get nuked out of orbit and talk about the actual topic of today's podcast, which is tech debt uh, consolidation. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Mark, let's, let's start simple. What is, what is a tech debt? So tech debt is basically um, time, essentially. I know that's a very simplistic way of putting it, but it's basically stealing time from yourself. Um, so it works in the same way. I saw a really good um, explanation of it, of um, comparing it to monetary debt. Hmm. So it's kind of like a loan debt. Um, it only grows, and eventually you are going to have to repay that debt. Um, so that is probably the best way of thinking about tech debt as a debt. Um, but there are many different types of tech debt, um, all of which cost and all of which need to be repaid at some point. So are we we are specifically focusing on development tech debt here though. We're not we're not because yes. you've got a lot of experience managing it and inheriting it. Uh, so unlike yeah. tech uh, unlike monetary debt, I think that does die with you. <laughs> I think in yeah. most in most cultures well, anyway. Well, it's it's also useful to say that tech debt is not only software related. There is, you know, there is also hard hardware related tech debt, which is most visible with uh, countries' infrastructures. Internet infrastructure in the US, uh, US has one of the worst internets only because they were the first ones to start, so that their technology was, hmm. you know, pretty primitive at the time. Whereas one of the best internets in the entire world has Romania because they laid down the fiber optic cables first. Yeah, and I think um, I think that it can be applied at a smaller scale as well. I was I was working with a, a company, a very large company, uh, quite a few years ago now, and part of the project, I was part of a much larger transformation project where they were moving from Windows, this is, this is hideous, Windows 98 to Windows 7, and Windows 8.1 was the recommended one to work with there. The reason they were doing that is because they, it wasn't, it hadn't been signed off by upper management or higher the higher beings rather but they still had there was essentially moving they were paying off some of the debt but they were just going to have to keep paying that debt off but that would that would keep applying as well even if they went up to windows 8.1 they would still have to keep updating with new os releases so in your world then mark specifically mm -hmm. so you've got you are you currently dealing with tech debt right now uh, and large amounts of it, or are you just are you talking about previous experiences? Um, yeah, so I'm more talking about a, so I, so when I when I joined my current company, there was masses of tech debt. So I and we're sort of over the hill in that respect, um, and that's really where all the, the kind of experience comes from. But I think there's an argument to be made that you constantly accrue tech debt anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and there's different types of, uh, there's different ways, sorry, of how you can accrue that tech debt. Um, so uh, uh, my biggest sort of experience comes from um, BitRot, 
um, which is um, small incremental changes over a number of years. Right. You know, um, Since I've not heard that term of, before, bit rot. Well, yeah. It's self explanatory. Yeah, self explanatory, but it's basically um, just small changes, defect changes, or. Um, adding to the code base without actually looking at the architecture as in the direction that it's going without stopping and sort of saying, okay, now is time to, to rewrite this because it's become a monolith or it's become a monster. Yeah. Um, and it's too, too hard to read, too hard to maintain. So that's probably my most experience is, is in that kind of tech that and there obviously are other types of tech that. Yeah. So, I mean, what, how would you, what would you what would you be the best way to mitigate that though that particular type of tech that, so this bit this bit rot what would you i mean the way that i look at code when i write it is uh, i look at code as art i'll use the da vinci here we go we go back to your um uh, to your uh, icebreaker i use the da vinci quote which uh, i'll paraphrase da vinci quote software is never finished only abandoned and it is very, it's applicable to everything. So you, you have a circular cycle. You've got the SDLC, the software delivery development life cycle or whatever you want to call it. And you're constantly maintaining it. You're constantly writing new features. You're constantly getting updates and requests from either users or from customers. And you're constantly adding to your code base. Now, naturally, you add some tech debt at that point. In fact, you accrue tech debt just because, just by virtue of writing code in a, older version you know you when we for example when uh, link came out in the dotnet world suddenly everything everything that used to be a stored procedure now needed to, not everything a lot of things that used to be a stored procedure everybody now wanted to move into link and that became essentially tech debt now is tech debt dictated by the technology shifts or is it dictated by the design patterns or is it both I, I would argue that it is definitely both. Uh, I've got a great example of, as you just said, another example. Um, so um, .NET Core, the introduction of .NET Core, with the ability to run on Linux, obviously opens a lot more doors mm -hmm. infrastructurally as well as, um, yeah, as well as it being a new framework and, and new and shiny, and everyone wants to write code on it. Um, but yeah, so at the minute, in my current company, the process that we're going through now is basically converting assemblies to .NET standards. So, is there a business um, reason for that, or is that just because it's new and shiny? Um, it, there is a business reason. Um, so, um, in order to take advantage of containerization, essentially, okay, um, which, which, and we want to be able to run on Linux as well for right. uh, monetary reasons. Um, so I've seen a shift in that as a contractor. I've seen a shift in that for quite a while now. And the last, I would say, three big clients that I've had, they've wanted to move to .NET Core because of exactly that, because they want to be able to run, not necessarily in containers, but they want to be able to run on a Linux platform, but they want to take advantage of the internal knowledge of the .NET platform. There is a learning curve with .NET Core versus .NET Classic. Is it classic? Yeah. I think it's called classic now, they refer to it. But there is still also a use case for using .NET Classic as well. It's still a viable and relevant technology. And a lot of people I've heard are jumping ship. Not everybody, but a lot of people jump ship because it's shiny and new. And that is not a sensible business decision to make. But knowing that 
you can now, it said containerize things. You could containerize, as we said, into a Windows container, but we want to be able to containerize into a Linux container, which is one, cheaper to run, resource overhead, two, to be able to actually deploy it to a viable uh, Linux deployment or Linux infrastructure of some description. Yeah. So, yeah, um, essentially, that's that's a cause of of tech debt. Well, I would class that as tech debt. Um, you know, with the current uh, classic framework, that's not possible. So, well, we've just accrued like by the nature of a new framework, we've accrued tech debt there's a business need well i think there it is driven by the business need though that tech debt becomes debt because it's a business need now i've got i've still got some personal projects that are deployed to uh personal shared hosting platforms i have in my head i have tech debt because i want to containerize them and because i want to move them into my digital ocean nodes and i want to do all of this stuff and i can do that and it wouldn't take me that long really I want to move into an Angular framework because I like it, because I prefer it, but there's no business reason for me to do that because it's serving its purpose in its current form. The only business yeah. reason is I might save £100 a year on like closing my shared hosting down, but is that worth my you know my time? Probably not. You know? It's, it's interesting because like uh, to compare with game dev, game dev doesn't have as much tech dev that tech tech depth that's being accrued because of new and shiny features or new and shiny inventions that you have to skip because they, they it breaks. I mean, that, that's that's very common that you just never work on the newest uh, uh, release of the engine or platform that you're developing for, not because you don't want to, but because you started the project three years ago and if you would uh, keep updating shit, eventually one of the updates will break one of the co of core, core of, your, of your core scripts and fixing that will be too much of a hassle so you just don't do it. And this comes down so, to the way that games are actually designed. Games aren't designed like enterprise software in any way, yeah. shape or form. So, They're so, monoliths uh, so and it's... Yeah, and, and here I'm coming to my question, because the, the tech depth that I see in, in game dev has more to do with the design oversight. Like, when, when we first thought of the feature, or a, or a particular system, let's say, uh, uh, I don't know, like, uh, uh, your UI system, or your battle system, your skill system, when we first think of, think of it, and designing, we lay, lay, lay it down in stone, we write it a certain way, and over, over years, as we keep developing, um, we try to start adding features and maybe we sometimes want to do something that the system doesn't permit so we make a very hacky solution that's like a spaghetti code and that's the kind of tech depth that I'm most familiar with. Uh, the question is, is it still in the same area of, of, of things or is it something completely different? I think personally it's no different. I think the... When I think tech debt, my brain goes to also goes to things like unit testing. Um, and the reason I say that in relation to what you just said, Patrick, is that in game dev, unit testing isn't really a thing. I mean, it's becoming more of a thing in the Unity world a little bit, but it's generally not done. They don't test the code. I mean, it should, it, it makes people's lives a lot easier, but it's so dependent on third party uh, c uh, control systems and, and aesthetics. Tech debt, I think, in the game world, is probably more related to a vendor bringing out a new um, a new engine, or not necessarily engine, a new uh, plug-in, so I'm thinking of a physics yeah, engine, you know, a new physics oh. engine, some, or, or someone wants to sh shift from Havoc to a completely different physics engine because they've got a, a agreement, a business agreement with that particular en engine provider. And that becomes tech debt. 
or it becomes part of the project, but then they still have to hack it together and write loads of shims in order for it actually to work. And a shim to us is just a piece of code that hacks something, hacks one thing together with another thing, you know? Um, I think it still exists. I, I am working currently with loads of legacy systems in the enterprise that are written in C++ and some that are written, written in COBOL and some that are written in Fortran. And all of this stuff that exists is currently deployed in, you know, in very high scale, you know, high scale environments, huge amounts of PCs and, um, and components, but it works and they've got teams that support it. But where, I mean, when all of these developers that I'm, I'm seeing that maintain these are in the fifties and, you know, coming into, coming up to retirement age, what happens then? What happens when oh. they, cause we, we, I, I, I never want to touch any of that stuff, you know? I that, know. That's that. that. The one last yeah. Zen master of Cobol, Cobol is gonna become millionaire, and people will be traveling, <laughs> pilgrimage. People are gonna go on pilgrimage with their hardware to this holy mountain, <laughs> where the wise man of Cobol can fix your issues. So I th that's I think, what's gonna happen. I think, that in summary, I think yes, I think that it's it's similar. Tech debt is tech debt. At the end of the day, it's it's debt that you have related to something that you've code you've written or even infrastructure that you've put together that needs to be changed and needs to be updated with the times. Um, even in these legacy systems where we've got systems that are cap cop um, coping with their workload. In fact, they have been written very specifically to cope with the volumes of data or the volumes of users or interactions or requests or whatever they're working with. Um, and they are very specific to that use case then yes but as soon as and one of the reasons i'm working with my current client is is this as soon as you need to make that into a generic product with an enterprise some kind of enterprise design pattern or or enterprise grade kind of uh, software solution it becomes very difficult because not only is it old old language that is hard to support and hard to scale and old technology that it's deployed on it's also um, it, it's also not designed in a way that can be made generic. So therefore you say, right, let's rewrite this. Let's rewrite this using C-sharp and .NET or Java or whatever top level enterprise framework, you, you know, you want to work with. The, it doesn't matter to me what you write in. My, you know, my choice is this particular stack. It doesn't matter what stack you use to me. Yeah. So how do... I suppose the question is, how have you got from from your original state of having all this tech debt to a state where you're now, is it just hard work? You know, you're now actually manage that tech debt. Is it just hard work or is there a particular method that you've taken to get there? Um, so every fiber of my being wants to just rip out tech debt wherever I see it. Yeah. Um, it's just... It's learning to resist that urge. Um, how do you identify that? How, how, how do I identify? How do you identify how, that, that when you say you want to rip it out? Now, I see something. Yeah. I see some code that um, code smells or, or code that I'm not. I have to take a step back and hold my hands up and go, I'm not here to do that. My scope is this. I will work around what you've got there. Um, but you're in a different position to me. You actually, I'm assuming you're the product owner, essentially you, you own that software. If you're the senior, the lead, um, from a technical point of view, yes, I do. But I, we have other stakeholders who, uh, and it's not just at my current company, it's previous companies. Right. 
other stakeholders who are non-technical, um, who obviously don't understand what tech debt is. Yeah. Um, and don't, it's very hard to explain to someone who's not technical, as you said before, that software is never finished. Even if a feature looks like it's finished, it's probably not finished. Mm. Um, so yeah, the, the only real way that I've come to accept to address tech debt is piecemeal. So um, very small incremental changes, which unfortunately take, honestly, a number of years. Um, but eventually you do start to see light at the, the end of the tunnel. Now, there's been exceptions to this. Um, there's one component, um, which was literally basically unreadable. And it was kind of a black box and treated as a black box mm -hmm. and sort of just pushed away into the corner. And everyone just don't think about that. Um, and if we need to change it, we're going to have to rewrite it. And it, I mean, eventually there was a business need to, to rewrite it. It was a core bit of our system. Um, we wouldn't be able to function without it. But the only way that that tech debt was addressed was because the business needed it. Um, so that then becomes a priority and then you get a budget to actually address that tech debt. But it's not really addressing the tech debt there. Or rather, no, I suppose it is because you you have to say, right, let's say, for example, this is going to take us six months with four developers to develop, to, to, to rewrite this module. Now, would you would you do that? Would you rewrite it? I'm trying to, th I'm trying, without going into specifics, I'm trying to come up with a, a good use case or a scenario where... Uh, where that the rewrite could be avoided, but you could still service the business. Um, so what we're kind of doing it. In, um, so we've we've still got a a module. Let's just put it that way. Um, mm -hmm. We still got a module. What we're doing is we're doing a side by side rewrite. Um, so um, we're not actually releasing the replacement of that module um, into production. Um, until it's been obviously fully tested. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the way that you, that we kind of managed to get this on the product roadmap was to basically say, okay, in order for, us, for a, a team of developers to understand this module, it's actually going to take a longer amount of time to read through the code, um, try and understand how it works, um, document it, mm -hmm. than it, it would be to just actually rewrite it from scratch and make it, you know, um, make it uh, more plug and playable. Maintainable um, going forward. Maintainable, yeah. maintainable, yeah, that's the word. Um, and readable. And readable, yeah. So, it, we, I mean, this, this module was to the point of we could not make changes um, and reliably say that any of the changes that we made were going to work at all. So th this is where we come back to test-driven development as well and having the unit test yeah. for things and that that if you if they're done if it's done correctly we get code to a point where you can get yourself in a knot and you can create more tech debt if you don't write tests properly and you're not writing for the business you know even unit tests should really be written with a business focus and kind of I mean it's difficult to really make a call on that because it's dependent on the, the use case and the situation and the level that you're doing the tests at as well um, but I think um, I, I think if we, I've lost my train of thought there. What was I talking about? <laughs> Unit tests. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So um, I think if we focus on, if we focus on putting the right unit tests together, we 
and we don't go too far with it, we actually get to a point where we've got maintainable code that can be readable and is self-documenting. And that reduces, considerably reduces, forward moving tech debt. Now, the problem is, is you can introduce tech debt in that situation by, um, again, a business need. If a business comes to you and says, right, we've got a week to implement this new feature or to change this, what's the first thing that gets dropped at that in that situation? Of course. The test. Definitely not the only tests, would they be? I, I saw it with a, a recent client uh, a couple of years ago, actually. Um, I wrote a beautifully designed REST system, uh, REST service with Angular front end. I didn't do any Angular front end tests, sorry, um, but I, I did look, back end was covered to hell. The guy that I handed it off to was actually the business owner. He was a contractor like me and I handed it off to him and he had, he'd never done test driven development before, but he wanted me to do the test driven development and put the extra time and effort into it. As soon as he needed to modify it, he didn't come back to ask me budget constraints or whatever, it doesn't really matter. He modified it because the DevOps system that I put in place, the CI/CD system, was very heavily dependent on all the tests passing and passing to a certain de- uh, certain coverage and, and whatnot, um, which is another thing entirely. Um, it, it was failing, and he couldn't get it onto the servers, so he just commented out all the tests. Yeah. Now, oh. I when I when he then asked me to go back into it and help him change, make another change, I said to him what have you done this for? Why have you commented other tests out? And I ended up giving him some training on why TDD is important, especially if you've implemented a system with it in the first place. And I don't know if he's taken it on and I don't know if he's using it going forward, but I did hopefully clarify what it's for, why it was useful. Um, but I think the tests are still commented out. I don't think they've got... And I just refused to work on it because I was like, I- I'm sorry, but I gave it to you with 99% confidence that any changes would break a test. And now you've modified it. And now I, anything I do could have so many cascading effects. It was a huge, complex REST service. So, You see, that makes me wonder if... Um, because if you would compare building code to building a building, um, there are just certain things that you could, that you feasibly could skip on, like, you know, any sort of security of people working on it. Mm-hmm. So OSHA. But... Uh, but this could be to the detriment of, you know, obviously people working on it and the project because delays and the uh, eventual safety of people who will be using that building. And the same case could be made for TDD, uh, that it is, you know, uh, skipping on that is uh, hazardous to the developer's health, mm. at least mental, surely. Uh, and then, um, you know, to the potential safety of the of the code in the future. So I wonder if, you know, in the in a distant future, when we code will become more and more, we start to have more and more direct impact on human lives, uh, where there will be some sort of like a OSHA-like for TDDs with government agencies enforcing it the same way they do enforce OSHA. I don't think I government wonder. agencies are getting involved at that level. I've got to be honest with you, <laughs> especially not the UK government agencies. That the, yeah. the tech in in UK IT is ridiculous. It's. I mean, so, sooner or later they might have to. So you know, mm. we had we had a, a UK crisis a few years ago. We had the was it the WannaCry virus virus that hit the NHS oh, yeah. and banks and numerous big businesses all at once, and it was it basically ransomware that just locked out so many PCs and workstations and servers and ransomed them. And some people paid the ransom, a lot of people didn't, but <laughs> it still hasn't really opened people's eyes. They've just updated the virus checkers. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's ridiculous honestly the, the, the level of um, 
bureaucracy involved and security systems that are put in place that focus on the wrong thing, uh, focus on legacy practices and legacy systems and the amount of budget that goes into legacy systems is, I mean, this isn't a board, across the board, but it does no. apply to a lot uh, of government agencies. Okay. Well, you know, I used to think that all it takes is one tragedy to put legislation in place, but, yep. uh, nah. All it takes is one tragedy to get a billion dollars donated to an art project. Yes. Ah. Oh. That's uh, set. That's uh, set the tone, hasn't it? Okay. So, um, we when we first talked, Mark, we said uh, yeah. we said we were going to focus on, or we were going to talk about inheriting um, this tech debt, and we were going to talk about working, uh, not necessarily with any particular person, but working with a tech lead now that that makes bad decisions that gets you in the situation where you are acquiring tech debt now can we talk about that to start off with i don't want to force us down that route if you we can talk about that yeah okay so again we, we don't want to be mentioning any names we're not mentioning any companies or anything yeah. like that but um we have all of us uh, it's, it's me and mark have both uh, and, and i'm sure patrick as well but we've experienced situations where we worked for people um either line management or people above us uh, in the technical line that have made bad technical decisions whether it be let's drop the tests which is a simple right okay let's drop the tests because they don't fully understand what they're for or it could be any number of other reasons are you able to divulge any kind of use cases or any situations that you've had to deal yeah. with and how you dealt with them yeah um very, very strange, this one, because it's um, very cut and dry. Um, but basically, um, I have worked for a company previously um, who um, tech lead at the time decided um, that they wanted, we had a, um, a rudimentary, simple uh, mobile app, so, you know, an Android and an iOS app. Um, tech lead decided at the time we should bring this in-house Despite the fact that this app was a very simple app, um, didn't do much. It, um, it allowed you to record video and it uploaded it um, to a secure endpoint. So you say bring it um, in house, you mean bring the new development in house or a current yeah, an existing app? Basically, replace it. All oh, right. With, okay. um, replace that app with a new app, but bring that knowledge in house. Um, and that resulted in us um, hiring a um, junior developer with. Um, no experience um, of developing mobile applications. Right. Um, and you can probably guess what the end of that story is. Um, yeah, I mean, I've again, I've been in situations like that where we've I've worked with people and they've been in charge of sometimes a fairly complex system and they just haven't had the support or the knowledge to be able to maintain it or even say no when they, you know, they don't want the, the, the pride is hurt maybe when they say no to things and, or they think they can deal with it. Again, this is the Dunning-Kruger thing uh, that we've talked about quite a few times on this uh, podcast where they think they know more than they actually do and then that inherently gives us all tech debt to yeah. deal with. So what we were left with was basically um, no one in the team not really having any knowledge of of um, it was Xamarin, by the way, of Xamarin, um, and we basically had a very, very buggy production application, and the tech debt that that brought across was number one, we had to um, do all of the things that you have to do in order to deploy a mobile app. So you know, manage all of the, the app store, the Play Store, 
um, go through all of the CI and, and CD, which was completely separate from our normal CI CD pipeline. Mm-hmm. So we had two CI CD and CI and CD pipelines that we had to maintain. So it wasn't even really a, a code hector. It was a, a framework and, <laughs> and everything hector and also code hector because we had to maintain um, this Xamarin application, which as if you guys have ever had experience with Xamarin development, it's, it's lovely. It has, it has its, it, but it's 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 um, it's something to be learned. It's not like you if you can write C sharp, you can instantly develop a Xamarin application. Yeah. It's got its nuances. Yes. Um, and it was all of the overhead of that 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 brought you know the extra pressure, um, that sort of thing. And obviously, we'd committed to clients. Um, but there is a there is a happy ending to it, which is. Essentially, and I never agree with outsourcing, but in terms of a, of a simple mobile app that does one thing and doesn't really require updates, outsourcing is the way to go. So yeah. that is actually what we ended up doing. Um, and now we have no overhead of um, building the mobile app and releasing the mobile app. We don't need anyone in the team to be sort of really technically aware of you know, um, how to build an Android or an iOS app. Yeah. Um, so we're freed up to do other things that deliver more value to the business. And in the end, the app in the last year and a half hasn't had a single update yeah. other than for new iOS versions and, and new Android versions. But <laughs> So I, uh, I speak to, I've got a, a current client that um, I thoroughly enjoyed doing the work for, uh, but they, they had no internal C-sharp experience uh, and they wanted a Xamarin application and they also wanted a... Uh, restful service with an angular front end which is my speciality these days that's kind of what my bread and butter is so i was hired to to do the uh, as a contractor to do the 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 restful service which was the kind of everything that the xamarin app and there was also unity uh, unity interface as well all of those kind of interacted with my service Uh, but the xamarin app was done by another contractor i I'm very keen on my documentation. No one's perfect, and to be fair, the work that I did for the startup where we worked together, Mark, is probably now classed as tech debt because although I did do lots of um, technical documentation and put it together, it was written with WCF, It was, uh, which is still, again, relevant in the right use case, uh, but it probably should should have been a RESTful service. Actually, it was WCF RESTful, thinking about it, which is uh, was, a bit yeah. of a hack, but it worked. Um, but yeah, as I said, I know I'm aware that a lot of the time a contractor leaves a place, they are the evil one that, that people, you know, people then go, right, this guy's done this wrong and you know, he's not here to fix it. And then now we've got, it. that is also tech debt that you're inheriting from other people. Um, anyway, so this current client, they, they cannot get, I'm luckily in, I'm lucky in that I can split my time between clients so I can provide them some support for these updates that they want for the server side of things, the, the RESTful service and the database and everything else. Um, but the other developer, the Xamarin specialist and the Unity specialist disappeared off the face of the earth. Well, not disappeared, but not available. They are now unavailable. So that is now officially tech debt. I cannot help them with the Xamarin side because, as you said, as the, I know C Sharp, but I'm not a WCF guy. I'm not a Xamarin guy. I have no idea really how all of that sits together. I've got an idea, but I'm not an expert, so I wouldn't ever take it on. The Unity stuff, I would say I'm a junior in it, and I wouldn't like to get involved uh, with 
code that somebody else has written fully and wholly, you know? I'd prefer to write it from scratch myself with my own design patterns and everything. So I can help with it, but it'll be support, you know, it'll be giving advice more than anything. So yeah, more different types of tech debt there. We've got inherited from yeah. people that implemented it. Holy shit, I just realized that. When you mentioned taking over a Unity project after someone, I realized, and the, and you said that in the context of it being actually a tech dev, I realized I've done the fuck done with it because that was <laughs> that was actually one of the selling points that I had for joining Scopely, my current company, that, hey, I've, I've dealt with existing projects with, before and I had to maintain them and I had to get in and learn them. And in some cases, the original source code may or may not be written on stone tablets <laughs> and bestowed upon us uh, on a lonely mountain. So, yeah, that uh, that can be painful. Uh, ouch. You, you, just, you just triggered Vietnam flashbacks in me. <laughs> yeah. So we've all worked with it. We've all worked with Tech Day in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so, Mark, is there anything else you want to talk about with Tecta? Anything we haven't mentioned? Anything um, that's uh, on your mind? I suppose we didn't really cover the um, the Tecta that's incurred by the business knowingly creating Tecta. So, um, <laughs> okay. yeah. Um, Every developer loves that. Every developer loves yeah. that. Yeah. Um, do you mean it? Do you mean the one where you say, "Oh, we really shouldn't be doing this," and businesses, "Yeah, whatever, let's still do this." Oh, yeah. oh, I'm in for a story. Please do tell me more. You, you deal with that in the future. We don't care. <laughs> um, yeah. So, it, I mean, it's the typical, uh, especially this is especially um, true with non-technical people. Um, a stakeholder will come up to you and say, "Can we do X?" You then develop a prototype or maybe even an alpha. Um, you then run that, confirm with the stakeholder, and the stakeholder does not understand what the difference between an alpha, a beta, or a production app is. And then you end up with the alpha app in production. Yeah, <sighs> that happens more times than you would think. Um, I do desperately try to make my alphas, betas as production ready as possible, but. It's not always possible. I'm actually in the process of pushing a, a, a proof of concept. It's not even alpha or a beta uh, toolkit, and I've specifically labelled it as a toolkit, as a, a, the, the ability for us to connect to one system and get data into another system and use all of these funky scripts to do it. I don't think there's danger of that going in production, though, based on what I know, because it's essentially there to get funding. So I'm in a lucky position there, but I've been in lots of positions before with... Uh, people people not understanding what we do. <laughs> Chris, that sounds like a famous last word. I'm waiting only for to discover that, you know, in 20 years your app is going to take down some big-ass company because they put it's, it into It's direction. certainly not. I mean, it, again, all of, I've put comments on all of the scripts saying development only. If you need okay. to implement this, it needs to be done. A lot of things need to... I mean, to be fair, it's not really suitable. It's not... The use case for what I've put together, it's essentially hacking together so many different systems that aren't available in certain circumstances. I'm spinning up servers in Docker containers and things like that just to get, just to hack something together. When we actually agree with third party vendors what's going to go on, that's when it will start becoming a more viable production based environment. But I know for a fact that the situation, the thing that I'm putting together for uh, later on this year there's something going on that I need to get something ready for and that needs to be a fully fledged 
version with a simulator at one end. I can't, again, I can't talk about too much detail, but once that's in place, I imagine most of the code that I put together is going to end up in copied and pasted into the production environment, but hopefully they'll do tests because they've got... Okay, so strict... to people, to av people to avoid from, from Chris so that he doesn't break his NDAs. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Mark, let's imagine a hypothetical scenario where a company hired a junior developer and he made an alpha version of an app that got into production and then they were maintaining it for a year and now it became such a monstrosity that even the upper management understands that it has to be dealt with. They bring you as an expert. What do you do? How do you, how do you even deal with like this sort of catastrophe of everything that could go wrong went wrong and now we have to somehow fix it? Um... It really does depend. <laughs> Classic developer. Rewrite. Rewrite. <laughs> the answer is going to be rewrite. <laughs> um, but there's a way of rewriting things um, rather than just sort of tools down, let's rewrite. Um, in terms of how I've tackled that before, it's generally been a rewrite, but deploying it alongside the existing version and then checking for um, feature parity and function parity as well. A-B testing um, type stuff. Essentially A-B testing. So, um, so, so, so be slightly smarter than taking a sledgehammer to a hard drive. Yeah, so if, if possible, like don't even touch the existing code base. If you if that exists in a, in a module, um, don't even attempt to, you know, sort of do anything in that module, create a new module, that's, that's your rewrite. Um, or even write an adapter pattern or something that allows you to overlay or abstract from whatever it, again it depends on the use case really it depends on what yeah. you've got yeah and it depends on how big the mess is mm. if it's if it's spaghetti central <laughs> and we're only eating meatballs for the next five years yeah, yeah. Then, uh, <laughs> i've got i've then. used it i've used it quite a few times in the podcast for different scenarios but i once worked for a client that had a very very high pressure deadline they needed me to get something basically they were closing one of their places one of their offices and they had hundreds of jobs that needed to be moved over to another office another place it was a production-based environment and uh, a warehouse i can say that at least it was a warehouse and they were shutting it down and then moving moving all the jobs to this other warehouse um and when i got there they essentially they hired me to what i found out to be a copy and paste job of an old vb.net app uh, God knows what version of VB.net. I didn't even look at it. I, I looked at it at five seconds and said, "No, this isn't happening." Um, and every every single job. So bear in mind, there was about a hundred odd jobs needed a copy and paste of a full application into a Visual Source Safe repository. Yes, and uh, slight bits of code modified within this monolithic God method that was just indented to hell. I mean, it was it was spaghetti code hell to the point of I mean, sometimes you can abstract too much, you know, in your code, but my lord, this was horrific. And whenever I tried to modify it, the existing developer was like, no, oh, no, I don't. He didn't understand how to return true or false from a function, for God's sake. You know, he just didn't get object oriented programming. And uh, I just, I ended up with saying, look, no, I'm going to write a generic system and then we're going to have ETL packages that do all of the all of the donkey work for each of the jobs you know this generic system will be a single database where you can import data into and then throw it out to machines and things like that oh that was a hard job i think you can you can kind of mitigate the um well, the way i mitigate 
the, the danger of an alpha or even a, a beta getting into production is um, usually when I stop, so we work in sprints, um, usually before we start the sprint, we have a scoping period. Mm-hmm. And within the scoping period, we kind of, you know, um, gather requirements essentially from, from various stakeholders. Um, but as part of that scoping period, we, we, we kind of develop, um, I don't even know what the term would be, maybe a spy, just to prove that certain things are possible. Mm-hmm. Um, very recently, we were trying to do some file manipulation um, using S3, um, Amazon yep. S3. Um, and turns out what we wanted to do wasn't possible. And if we didn't do that sort of spike, we didn't do that sort of scoping period, um, the scope would have been way off. Um, and the requirements as a result of that period had to change. Yeah. And then obviously our estimates changed. But um, doing that work, not as part of the feature. So basically doing an alpha piece of work um, shouldn't really ever be classed as a feature. Yeah. That's I, how I see it anyway. I mean, I've, I'm lucky right now in that that's essentially what I'm doing. I'm spiking, I'm proof of concept in all of the potential options. So I'm currently looking at like three or four different providers for particular um, technology stacks. And I'm, I'm figuring out which one's more suitable, not just doing a feasibility study, but also trying to figure out technically what do they offer as a bit on a business level, what do they offer in order to be able to get funding and finance from the business to be able to implement them in the future next year. So luckily most of the stuff I'm doing is just, it's either throwaway or it just needs to be documented. But because they've taken me on as a solution architect slash senior dev developer, I'm not developing production level code. I'm not involved in that at all. There's team of 50 developers doing that kind of stuff but I'm completely segregated from that and I'm pushing my findings and writing documentation to separate repositories that are just going to sit there until someone needs to pull it and have a look at it you know so I don't think what I'm doing will end up being in production but it's it's there for when people need to um, speed up their development processes I suppose anyway so I think we have reached the end of the show it's been wonderful having you on, Mark. Um, but before we finish, we have uh, a section called RTFM. And all techies know what RTFM stands for. Um, yeah. And it's a bit of a whinge. It's our catharsis section where we talk about things that have annoyed us this week. Pat's been struggling for a few weeks to say anything that's annoyed him. I actually have one this yeah. week. Something that I've been dealing with for oh. the last uh, few weeks. Um, I'll, I'll go first, to, to be fair. Um, so currently, I am... In the process of trying to make, um, I've had various different MSDN subscriptions over the years. Now, MSDN is Microsoft Developer Network, for those people who don't know, and they range from £300 all the way to £10,000 for a particular subscription. I don't need anything massively fancy. I just need Visual Studio, SQL Server, you know, versions of operating systems and that kind of thing. So there is something out there called the Microsoft Action Pack, which is very little known. Um, and it's uh, you have to sign up to something called the Microsoft Partner Network and do some kind of um, capability studies, uh, capability exercises just to prove that you're a developer so you know what you're talking about so you can get access to Visual Studio. £395, it used to be 150 it's gone up slowly over the years. And obviously, as an individual, I want to pay £395 rather than £1,200 for the year or something like that. So I'm pushing for this. My previous subscription was a Visual Studio Enterprise subscription. 
uh, which was cost a fortune. I needed it for something very specific. Now that, I think, has broken my Microsoft account. I've used my single email address for years with Microsoft, and it's been a personal email address, and I've had uh, what's now called Azure DevOps, which was Visual Studio Online, Visual Studio Team Services, or whatever you want to call it, um, for hosting a lot of my enterprise source code. I use um, MSDN for all my licenses. Basically, this map subscription gives me an MSDN subscription with all of these Azure benefits, and Azure, like 100 pounds Azure credit or something a month or something as well. I'm struggling. When I signed up for it, you have to go onto the website, log in as your account, and then click an enroll button. You'd think that was easy, but unfortunately my current account cannot, my uh, current personal email, which I've been using for decades, which I've built up an entire Microsoft world around, doesn't work. I cannot subscribe to it at all, and I don't know why. I've got no idea. It just keeps telling me, and I've been on to Microsoft support. I've had them on my PC actually trying to go through the process with me as well, which is unheard of, to be fair. I've got wow, to, I, I mean, know. props to Microsoft support. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they didn't solve anything, but at least they fucking tried. And and then that got escalated to technical support because it was, I think it was a first-line support guy that was helping me. He was great, you know, he, he was great for... for the level, uh, I suppose, that he was working at, but he was very specifically focused on the partner network. Um, so I've now been, I got it escalated to technical support. They went through the entire process again. I even, they even wanted me to record the process via Microsoft Screen Recorder to document exactly what I did, which I'd already done. And I've already provided step-by-step -step instructions, all of the errors, all of the, ev I mean, I'm a really detail-oriented person. They haven't read my previous ticket, you know, the previous entries on the ticket. And it's just gone to a point now where, unfortunately, I've had a bit of a personal thing going on over the last um, couple of weeks. I haven't been able to respond to it. Now, I've closed the ticket today, so I can't do anything with it. And probably all of that data is now lost. I'll have to restart the whole fucking thing again. So yes, that's my, my rant for today. And I'm very annoyed because I've got less than a week before my entire Azure account is going to get deleted off the face of the planet, which includes all of my source code, all of my um, repositories, enterprise repositories, all of my builds um, set up in Azure DevOps, which, I mean, fair enough, it's only like six or seven repositories, but it's beside the point. You know, I've built up a hell of an infrastructure there. And I, I think once it gets deleted, I'm not going to be able to... And basically, they want me to sign up to a Visual Studio Enterprise account because that's what I previously had. And I think that's probably why I can't enroll in the Microsoft Partner Network. But nobody's actually un listening to me and nobody seems to understand exactly what the problem is. I've got What's happened is I've got an entry in a database somewhere. I've got a record. That's what's happened. There's a record with my email address in a database that shouldn't be there from... 15 years ago or something you know from when i used to be an mpn member and it's it's conflicting or something god fucking damn it Rant that over. sounds like a right pain <laughs> holy shit the rtfm doesn't have to be by the way about technical stuff uh, mark it can be anything in the world whatsoever um have you got anything this week pat um actually yeah and Ooh. uh because I'm growing increasingly frustrated. Like before it was like, haha, it's kind of funny. Now it's, oh my God, this is actually impeding on my life uh, unknowingly. I mean, it's like just working with one monitor. Like I don't understand. I don't understand how 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 this happened. Am I like monitor addicted now? Like am I a, am I a screen a real estate junkie or some shit? Because like honestly there is literally nothing like right now i'm working like thank god thank 
god, like, okay, you shut on Microsoft, I'm gonna praise them. Thank fucking god for, like, those virtual desktops in uh, Microsoft, you know, in the, in, the, in the newest Windows, the Windows 10, yeah. because I have, like, six at this point. <laughs> And the number keeps decreasing because I just, I need different contexts. You know, I need I need for work, I need for this project, I need for DNI, for live streaming because I can't spread my shit through monitors. It's it's, it's driving me crazy. I uh, I really need uh, like I uh, I and thank God that paycheck is soon because I need a desk so I can stack the fat fucking monitors. <laughs> I'm lucky. Actually, I've no, got I, a lot of monitors. Yeah. So I'm... I actually don't need a desk. I need a power drill and a fuck ton of visa mounts. And I'm gonna be drilling the fuck out of my uh, wall. I have them everywhere. It's gonna be fucking amazing. So this is why it's Here, called the RTFM. Here's my, uh, yeah. Here's yeah. my Sensory advisory. Yeah. Parent advisory. Yeah. Parent. Because Chris, you, you can't rage. Like, you, you don't have the, the burning passion within I, you. The, you I do like, have a burning oh, passion within me, but I've, I'm too old now, Pat. I'm too old <laughs> to care that much about something. Oh. You know, it's a mild annoyance. There are so many other things in the world that are much more... Uh, pressing and uh, more important than my RTFMs, to be honest. <laughs> literally, literally nothing is more important on this God's given earth mm. than mm. me having more monitors. <laughs> yeah. So, Mark, have you got anything yeah. you want to rant about? And strangely, um, it's it's quite connected to your issue. Okay. Not really strictly related to Azure, but it's definitely MSDN related. So, um, my current company um, had a BizSpark account. Um, I also had one, and that's probably half of the problem. Um, BizSpark actually provides a, a, a startup MSDN uh, license for small businesses, and I used it for three or four years, I think, or however long it lasted. Go on, Mark, sorry. Yeah. Um, so basically, ours is coming to the end because we, you know, we're basically maturing into a, into a medium-sized company. So mm -hmm. Probably don't even qualify for it really anymore. But um, they basically just terminated or well, revoked all of our licenses. <laughs> um, but not, that's not strictly true because you go to the if you went to the dashboard and you tried to reassign a license, rather than reassigning a license to a different user, it just revoked it. So it looked like it was processing and it was. Is, is this Do you have to do this via the Microsoft Partner Network? Yeah. So you're having very similar problems to me. I'm having all. I mean, I've I've ended up creating my own. Uh, I've enrolled with a different account, a different email account, which is nonsense to me because I've I've been using my main one for years. And now yeah. I'm at a point where nothing's working. I can't reassign licenses. I can't do anything with it. And I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. I just want them to delete everything and let me start again. You know, <laughs> in MPN at least, not on Azure. Yeah. Well, it, it resulted basically in me revoking two of the team members' licenses because I was trying to reassign old licenses, if that makes any sense. Um, so we had members of the team that have, have left uh, the business, and I was trying to reassign licenses over to new users. And then I just, in the end, it just revoked those licenses. So <laughs> you just saw like an available licenses count just going down and down every time it did anything. Yeah. And um uh, and, it, and to be honest, it's the same story with you. Um, we had to call. We had, uh, honestly, I think it was like 15 emails back and forth uh, between Microsoft and ourselves. I think we even had a call at one point. And eventually it was just sort of, oh, okay, we know what it is. And then 
Well, that's the thing is, I just well, want to speak to somebody who knows what the problem is or can read everything that I've told them and go, oh, yeah, okay, this record needs yeah. deleting or, or remove it or something, you know? Yeah. So frustrating. So frustrating. All, it all boils down to licenses. It end. does. It does indeed. <laughs> oh, right. Anyway, so we are now at the end of the show. Thanks to everybody in, in Twitch chat. Um, awesome 90. Drinking or oh, drinking the corpse vomit. I love that name. That's John, by the way. That's uh, John from that we used to work with, Mark. Oh, yeah, it's lovely, lovely name that. Avina, um, and uh, I think that's it for people who've mentioned things today. So thank you very much for for getting involved. Um, and yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's not a stream if we don't fail somehow. Sorry. Uh, but anyhow, if you want to complain about me not hitting the timing, you can always visit our website, uh, dnistream.live, where we have a wonderful submission form and you can actually fill it in and complain about me or submit yourself to the podcast as a guest if you would like to join us or you know any other reason for con for, for contacting we have also all of our social media links and everything so basically dni stream.live oh also discord uh, indeed yes so, yeah. and uh, yeah the, the source code for our website is also available on uh, github.com for slash documentation not included it is a We've talked about it a lot today, so it's a .dot .net core RESTful API with a Angular front end. Um, I ham I haven't done anything for ages because I've had another website to do and work and personal things going on. So sorry, everybody, but I will try and get uh, get on that. And finally, thank you very much, Mark. I hope you've enjoyed being a guest, and our listeners have learned about tech debt to some extent. If you've got anything to pimp whatsoever and you've got uh, you got any personal projects you want to talk about your business or anything like that, please do so now. If not, then great. Um, well, I did have some open source repos, but I made them private when, when Microsoft bought GitHub. So, you know, thanks Microsoft. Okay. Um, but yeah, so nothing really, nothing really pimp worthy. Um, so I will remain pimpless. Fair enough, fair enough. So we hope to see everybody next week on twitch.tv forward slash DNI stream at 7pm on Thursday UK, 7pm uh, UK time on Thursdays. Um, keep your eyes out on our Twitter account at DNI stream for any updates or come into our Discord chat and get involved. We, uh, we've had a little bit going on this week, and but I think Josie's back next week, so we should be back to normal social uh, social interactions with everybody. So thank you very much. Cheers, Mark. See you all later. Bye-bye. Bye.